Let us pray. Almighty and most gracious God, once more we draw near to you as you have drawn near to us. Make your word to come alive within us as we have heard it, that it would flow down deep into our innermost parts and renew them, and that you would work your salvation more and more deeply within us and cause us to know our Lord Jesus more deeply and more intimately as we walk this path that you have placed us on. All of this we do ask through that very same Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So over the past few weeks and months, I've been revisiting some of my old sci-fi books. I've been uh, caught up in rereading Isaac Asimov's Foundation series. It's quite a wonderful little series in the fact that he actually, by the end of it, he links almost every book he's written together. All of his major sci-fi sci books he links together with the last couple of books of his Foundation series. And that's books that he's written over, that he had written over 40 years. And it's just unique. It's fun to read these books because of the ideas that are being wrestled with in the text. In the last book, your, the main character is wrestling with this idea that he has committed the galaxy to. Part of the idea of the Foundation series is that the galaxy is moving toward a second galactic empire, toward peace and prosperity for all the people of the galaxy. The first empire had become corrupt and become very abusive of its power and had fallen. And this man named Harry Seldon stepped forward and had developed this mathematical thing called psychohistory that would allow him to plot the course of the universe and to set it moving forward so that in a thousand years a new galactic empire would be created. But about halfway in, a choice came up for one man as he discovered a planet where everyone was interconnected with one another mentally. They were connected at a spiritual and mental level to one another, not only to each other, not only for the humans, but even with the animals and with the dirt and with the trees and the plants and everything on the planet was interconnected as a great planetary consciousness. And this one man was given the choice of, do we keep up with the Selden plan, moving toward a second galactic empire, or do we commit the galaxy toward moving toward this galactic consciousness instead of just a planetary, but a galactic one to where people would be interconnected they would know what other people were feeling and be able to adjust their behavior based on that and in that way lose some sense of individuality a great amount of individuality even but to make a more peaceful and prosperous and better kind of galaxy and so this man had chosen that path you may be wondering what does this have to do with what jesus is saying today well it has to do a huge amount with it i think because ultimately the problem that the that Jesus brings about, the reason that divorce exists, the reason that children don't get the blessings of the Lord is because of what Jesus said in verse 5. Because of your hardness of heart. You see, in this wonderful sci-fi series, there's an issue of the fact that the people are selfish. We all recognize that. We're all selfish. We're all looking out for ourselves. We're all trying to better our lives on top of everyone else. Even in the littlest of ways, we are self-centered, self-seeking glory mongers. And that is riddled throughout the Foundation series. You have leaders who are just all about themselves, and despite being all about themselves, good things are able to happen, but things become shakier and shakier as it goes on, and hence this one main character chooses to pursue something radically different, this galactic consciousness that would force people to contend with other people in a deeper way and to soften the edges. 
a way to force people to change their behavior for the sake of the good. In our world, our hard-heartedness is absolutely true. We pursue our own selves. And the only way that that hard-heartedness can be overcome, though, is not through a galactic consciousness way out in outer space, but through the kind and gracious work of a Lord who confronts us with that reality and His way of bringing that new life into us that will remake our hearts and turn them into soft hearts that can be molded by the Spirit and lead us into becoming the right kind of people to become the kind of people we are intended to be. It's only because of Jesus that our hard-heartedness can be overcome in any way whatsoever. As we pursue this idea of hard-heartedness, we see that that in and of itself is the foundation of divorce. We may not realize it, but there in that first century context, there was actually quite the battle about divorce going on. A couple hundred years before that, there had been a couple of leading rabbis who took two different interpretations of divorce. Over in Deuteronomy 24, the issue is raised of, can a woman marry her first husband if she's been married to someone else? She, got, she ended up being divorced by that first husband. She married someone else, and the question was, can she remarry that first husband? That's actually the point of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. That question came up, and so Moses is addressing that question. But it starts off with simply the statement of, if a man divorces his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce. And within that passage, there's a word in it that created some confusion, that created some questions. It says that a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And then he says, if she becomes another man's wife and that man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, she cannot return to her first husband. But see, there in that midst of verse 1, it says, if the man, the husband, finds some indecency in her, that one word, indecency, created some interpretive problems for people. One rabbi took it at its literal meaning that that word gets used to refer to nakedness dealing with sexual immorality throughout the Old Testament. And so Shammai, this rabbi, said, the text is teaching us that a man can only divorce his wife when he's found that she has been unfaithful. That is the only reason for a divorce that can be accepted. Another rabbi named Hillel said divorce could be done for any reason that really that indecency is anything the man finds indecent. Even going so far as to, be, as to him saying she could be a bad cook and he could divorce her. She could talk too loudly and bother the neighbors and he could divorce her. Anything that was unseemly or indecent, according to the man's standards, was reason to write a certificate of divorce. And so that's the context that you have this debate. Divorce for basically only one reason, unfaithfulness of the spouse, or for whatever reason a man finds fit. And of course, within all this, it's never even brought up that the idea of a woman divorcing her husband, that wasn't really heard of within the Jewish context. It's not that it never happened, but it was just so infrequent that there was no need to even bring it up because it was such a shameful thing for a woman to choose to divorce her husband. But here we have this context of the Pharisees coming up and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
And Jesus replied, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Notice what he, they say. Moses allowed. The foundation of divorce is based on an allowance, not a command. It's never commanded that if a man finds his wife have been, has been unfaithful, he has to divorce her. No, it says he may divorce her if he finds something like that. It's not a requirement. It doesn't have to be this way. Divorce does not have to exist, but yet it's allowed to exist. It's allowed to exist because we live in the second best world. We live in a second best world. We don't live in the creation that God intended from the beginning. We live in a creation that has been marred and affected by sin itself, has been broken down, has been stripped away of its glory, of its blessedness. And so we live in a world full of sinners who are selfish, who are self-seeking, who will step on top of each other in order to get to the top. And unfortunately, part of that stepping on top of people would be stepping on one's own wife, putting her down in order to lift himself up. And so many in that culture, many of the rabbis had followed Hillel. They wanted divorce for any reason. Because then they could just get divorced whenever they wanted and they could pursue another wife because divorce assumed remarriage. That's why there had to be a certificate. There had to be proof that this woman was no longer connected to this man. If there was any hint that she was still connected, then she could not remarry and he could not remarry. Though they had allowances for polygamy. But if you read about every polygamous family in the Old Testament, it's a disaster. The family life is horrible. The family life is so dysfunctional that it makes our most dysfunctional families these days look pretty amazing. Polygamy always leads to serious dysfunction and damage to everyone in the family. Once more, it was an allowance, not a requirement, not a command. It was something that simply existed and was put up with. Just as divorce is something that is, exists and is put up with, but that certificate allowed the woman to remarry. In fact, it was a great grace because a woman was unable to care for herself in the way that she can today in our culture. She was tied to marriage. She needed to be married in order to better her life, in order to have children who would then take care of her in the future. And if she couldn't marry and have legitimate children, then she was left to destitution. And so with the adding and the giving of a certificate of divorce, that woman could say, I was married, but he left me. He abandoned me, he divorced me, but I, I can be remarried. And she could have the right of remarriage, just as that man would have the right of remarriage. And so it was a grace, in fact, for this certificate to exist. But Jesus digs down that the foundation of divorce is not merely that Moses allowed it, but why would Moses allow something like that? Why would he have to put into place something that would enable a woman to find a husband again? Why would he have to put into place something that would make sure that the woman could be taken care of in the long run. What was wrong in this culture? What was wrong with these people? It wasn't so much that there was something wrong in the culture that had been created, but there was something wrong in the hearts of the people creating that culture. As Jesus said, as I already pointed out in verse 5, because of your hard-heartedness, Moses wrote you this commandment. The foundation of divorce fall, flows out of our own hearts. We are broken people. We are selfish people, as I keep saying. We pursue our own good. And that hardness of heart led husbands to abandon their wives, led husbands to divorce their wives for any reason whatsoever so that they could have some other woman. Divorce flows primarily in this context out of selfishness. 
It flows out of the hard-heartedness of men against their wives. And ultimately, that hard-heartedness, though, is connected to something else. In the Greek, the word for the hardness of heart occurs a couple of times in the Old Testament. When it does, it's always associated with idolatry. It's connected deeply with idolatry, that your hardness of heart leads you into idolatry. That there's a hardness of heart in these men because they are not worshiping God the Creator. They are worshiping idols. They are worshiping themselves or fertility gods or some gods up in the hills. Their hearts are not solely committed to Yahweh, the Creator and Covenant Redeemer of these people. And because of that hardness of heart toward God, they have a hardness of heart toward the most important person in their lives, their spouse, their wives. They turn against her because they've turned against God. And that is where divorce comes from. It comes out of that hard-heartedness, that rejection of God Himself at the end of the day. Because one is rejected to God, divorce becomes necessary. Divorce becomes a part and parcel of culture. Because there will always be a party who will reject what God desires to be done. And when one party does that, that marriage will begin heading toward disaster until there can be forgiveness, until there can be renewal, until there can be a softening of hearts and a reestablishment of covenant love toward one another. And there's the problem. The problem isn't with marriage. The problem is with us. The problem is in our hearts. But Jesus shifts the direction. He confronts the Pharisees with their hardness of heart, that that is what has created the allowance for divorce. But he says the foundation of marriage is not in that. It's not in those words that Moses penned about allowing divorce. They come much earlier in Scripture. The foundation of marriage comes from Genesis 1 and 2, from creation itself. Jesus says divorce was not what was intended. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He made them to be two compatible parts of a whole. That they would come together and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The man and the woman are to come together in a union that makes them one flesh. A union that demands that the man abandon his father and mother, the most important relationship to him at the time, and for the woman likewise to do the same. And for them to come together, and as an old campus minister would say, to weave and to cleave and weave one another's lives together. Their lives become bound up with one another, not just outwardly, but there's a spiritual dimension, an inward dimension to this cleaving together, this holding fast and becoming one flesh. One commentator says, it's like a new human being is created in this union of husband and wife. That the two become so enmeshed together that they are one person now. They're one unit. They're one new human being. And that is what God intends for marriage to be. Becoming one together. Walking in this world together. Being with one another. Being helpmeets toward one another. The husband leading the wife and the wife helping the husband. Raising the children together. Working together in order to better this world. For when marriages function well, culture functions well. Because then children have stability. They have a connection to their parents. They have a world in which they can be raised, in which they can feel safe and secure in a way that they can't when one or both parents vanish from their lives. 
and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are brought together in the same sense of how a head is joined to the body for life. You don't take your head off and switch heads around. It's not like that one story in The Wizard of Oz with one of the villains where she can just switch her head around whenever she wants. No, we have one head that goes with our one body. And so it is the same with the husband and wife. There is not to be the switching of spouses over and over until you find the one that fits you that day. No, when you connect together, when you are married, you are brought together to stay together. You're intended to remain with one another and to build that life together. To build a life both physically and spiritually with one another, united together in a unique and special way that God has caused to occur by way of how he created all things. And it is God himself that has brought this together. It is God himself who has caused husband and wife to become one flesh. And that is why Jesus then says in verse 9, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It is not man's job to separate husband and wife. It is not man's job to force divorce to occur. Though divorce will happen, divorce does exist. It is not man's job to separate that husband and wife from one another. Man's job is to follow God's will, which is the joining together of husband and wife. Man should follow that and do everything he can to encourage healthy marriages, to encourage the coming together of those men and women in their as spouses. And we see this throughout the past. That's why so many nations in the past have always given special benefits to husbands and wives over against other relationships within culture because previous cultures have seen that marriage was foundational for a healthy culture. That as husbands and wives were encouraged to be together, they raised children who are healthier, more well-adjusted, who are ready to better society because they had lived in a home, had a home life that bettered them, that increased their likelihood of going out and being healthy members of society who would then marry and stay married and have children that would be raised in that same kind of healthy environment. Previous cultures saw the necessity and the goodness of marriage, whereas our culture today has become a bit more like that Judaic culture in the first century where people could just, where the husbands could divorce wives for whatever reason. We have that same kind of no-fault divorce now, and we've reduced marriage down to a mere business contract. Well, it's just a contract between two people so they can enter and leave anytime they want and they set up the parameters of who gets what at the end. Where scripturally marriage is a covenant that's entered into as a lifelong commitment, not to be broken, not to be abandoned, not to be walked away from. It is a union that is to remain in force for the whole of both the people's lives. Until one spouse dies, that union remains. So much so is marriage so important that it is the icon, as one commentator put it, of union between Christ and the church. Marriage becomes the icon. Marriage becomes a picture. So much so that God, I would say, created marriage after he thought of Christ and the church. The union of Christ and church is more foundational than marriage itself, and marriage becomes that unique picture that God then works into creation to point us to Christ to point us to that union that exists. And so the union of the church is union to Christ. And that is represented by marriage in our lives. Hence another reason for the importance of that one flesh union being created by God because we become so united to Christ that we are enmeshed in Him and He in us. So Paul would say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ gives me the life that I need to live in this world. 
And all of that, the foundation of divorce being our hardness of heart, the foundation of marriage being God's good creation. Then what are we to do about that hardness of heart that exists in our lives? Well, we see it found in the foundation of children. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Parents were bringing children to him because they wanted his blessing upon them. And the disciples were trying to shoo those children away. But Jesus takes those children and blesses them. And he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. It's funny how just a little earlier in chapter 9, he had already taken a child and put that child in the midst of the disciples and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. How quickly the disciples forgot and they were trying to shoo away these children. They were pushing them out the door and saying, leave the master alone. How quick they forgot that to receive a child in the name of Jesus is to receive Jesus himself. And so Jesus rebukes his disciples and says, let the children come because the kingdom belongs to ones like this. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took the children in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Jesus wanted the children to come to him. He wanted to bless them. He wanted to give them his blessings. He wanted to put them into that foundation of faith and call forth faith out of them through his own words. And he says right here, the foundation of children is that we are to become like them, to become trusting like them, to become loving like them, to recognize that there's a specialness in children and how they view the world. In one of my commentaries, I read a story about a man who put a pot of gold coins out on his doorstep and with a sign that just simply said, take a coin, it's free. And people all day walked back and forth past his house and no one took any because they are like, no, 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 this can't be real. There's some trick here. He's not really giving away gold coins. Those must be fake or something like that. And no one would take any. And at the end of the day, as the man was about to take those, that bowl of gold and put it back in his house, a little child came running by and saw the sign and was like, oh, grabbed a gold coin and ran away because he trusted the sign. He trusted the intent of the giver. He said, oh, he said I could have one, so surely he will let me have it because he said he would. That is the kind of trust we are called to have toward the Father and toward Jesus. This trust that says, he said so, so it must be. If God has said that he will heal me, he will heal me. If God has said that I have a hard heart, but he will give me a new heart, then he will do that. And that is the cure for that hard-heartedness that in this particular passage leads to divorce. The cure is receiving the kingdom of God like a child. To enter into that kingdom with trust, to let God's good will flow over you, and to follow and desire God's good will for you. To walk that path he has called us to, to walk in the trust and love of Jesus. To trust Jesus and to love him in the light of the fact that he loves you. He has poured out his life for you and taken it up once more that he might then pour that new life into you. He calls forth new life by giving us new hearts, which undoes that hard-heartedness little by little, changing us more and more so that we could follow after Jesus more and more, so that we could then live in that true and perfect and good will of God. Though the hard-heartedness will rear its ugly head, though it will come back to haunt us over and over and over, we rest like children 
in Jesus. We rest like children upon Jesus' shoulder, receiving his blessing, receiving his kindness, receiving his compassion, a compassion that is the same compassion as the Father toward us, that the Father himself is acting through Jesus to bring salvation, to bring new life, to bring an undoing of our hardened hearts that seek idols, that seek selfishness, that seek what we shouldn't have instead of what is freely given. That is what Jesus is calling us to today, to abandon our hard-heartedness and to receive the new heart that he gives that we would live and walk in that perfect will. And so the answer to the selfishness is not a galactic consciousness. The answer is a new heart from Jesus. For that new heart will lead us into right relationships with one another. And the new heart will lead to right relationships between husbands and wives, which will then lead to right and better relationships with children, which will then lead those children into right and better relationships with their spouses in the future. Those new hearts that God gives freely will bring the healing that this world needs as he brings us under his gracious rule. For that is his kingdom, a gracious rule toward creation, a gracious rule toward his people to pour love and kindness and mercy upon us that we would be cleansed from all of our sins and walk before him in love and walk before him in faith and walk before him knowing that his love is upon us and that we are one with him through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.